and welcome to the Nursing Podcast. This is Landon. Hello, this is Monique. Coming to you again from the Kitchen of Knowledge. <laughs> and today we are going to talk about the p-value. That's the P-E-E value, uh, not in research, but we're going to talk about understanding the value of the urinalysis. Oh, that kind of P. Yes, that oh, kind of great. P. great. So this isn't stats. No, oh, not at all. Hopefully we haven't lost most of the people already. <laughs> I don't think so. So a urinalysis is probably one of the more common and simple tests that we do, not only in the emergency department, but often at GP's offices or walking medical clinics. And because it's such a common test, I think we get a little blasé about the reason and value for doing urinalyses. I think that's the plural for urinalysis, right? I don't know. You're the English major. <laughs> I think it is. As we all know, our kidneys really are the garbage collectors and recycling depot in our bodies. They filter out wastes, they help regulate the amount of water in our body, and they conserve proteins, electrolytes, and other compounds that the body can reuse. Anything that is not needed is excreted in the urine. So a urinalysis actually detects the byproducts of normal and abnormal metabolism, cells, cellular fragments, and bacteria in the urine. And why this is helpful is many medical disorders can be di diagnosed in their early stages by detecting abnormalities in, this, in the urine itself. These would include an increased concentration of constituents that are not usually found in significant quantities in the urine, like glucose, protein, bile, RBCs, WBCs, crystals, and bacteria. Now, they may be present because, one, there are elevated concentrations of the substance in the blood, and your body is trying to decrease the blood levels by dumping them in the urine. Kidney disease has made the kidneys less effective at filtering, or there may be a UTI present, as in the case of bacteria and white blood cells. So before talking about some of these specifics, mm -hmm. abnormalities in the urine, let's talk a little bit about the basics of a urinalysis. A complete urinalysis consists of three distinct phases. The first, which is the one we all learned on our first day of nursing school, is the visual examination. And that's where you look at the urine's color, clarity, and concentration mm -hmm. and get to come up with all kinds of fancy words to describe someone's pee. Yes, exactly. Which I know in my nursing school made for very interesting dinner conversation <laughs> in, the, in residence afterwards. The second is a chemical examination, which tests for usually anywhere from five to nine substances, depending on the, the machine or the sticks you use. And that... Again, that's a, usually a visual chemical examination. And the third is the microscopic examination, which actually identifies and counts the types of cells, counts casts, crystals, other components such as bacteria and mucus that can be present. And that's typically the version that we send away and have someone else do. Exactly, yeah. So let's look at those three. So, so the first one is the visual examination. Urine can be a variety of colors. Typically, it is yellow. It can be pale to very dark or amber, which really is just telling us how concentrated the urine is and how well hydrated or dehydrated you are. Uh, you could have hematuria, which is the look of blood or pink tinge in the urine, right up to seeing full-on blood in the urine. And you got to make sure that that's actually coming from the urine and not mm -hmm. from somewhere else. For example, if a woman's menstruating or coming from hemorrhoids or other contamination, so those could indicate, just seeing it visually like that could indicate a kidney stone, UTI. But, but really, we're going to, at that point, do a bit of a more of an exam, a microscopic urinalysis, and probably some other testing as well. Now, what about beets? What, what is that whole thing about eating beets? Well, some people, and you actually can look this up, there is some people who metabolize one of the, the sub chemicals in beets differently. And so some people, it turns their 
uh, urine pink or red. Some people it turns their poop pink or red. Oh, for heaven's um, sake. And it all has to do with how you absorb that, uh, and I don't remember the name of it, but mm-hmm. I have Googled this, uh, <laughs> that chemical in beets. So it may, it, it may be a question, have you eaten beets recently? But let me tell you, uh, beet pee does not look like blood pee. Exactly. It may just be a little dark purpley or uh, a little darker brown. But blood is blood, and it looks like blood. Don't assume they've eaten beets because it's red. Now, the, the urine clarity, we usually, we, again, we come up with some fancy words. Clear, slightly cloudy, cloudy, or turbid. So normal urine can be clear or cloudy. Lots of substances can end up in urine um, that are not a cause for concern. It can be prostatic fluid, cells, normal urine crystals, some mucus, some contaminants from body lotions, powders, that sort of thing. So it's typically cloudy urine, although, yes, people with a UTI may have cloudy urine. There's lots of other reasons you might have cloudy urine, so it's not a just look at it and go, oh my goodness. And if there are things such as red blood cells, white blood cells, or bacteria, that does indicate a condition that we should investigate. Mm-hmm. But we're going to really discover that those are there on the next two steps. Yeah, and I think that you're, you're right. I think the visual exam is just a quick look at it but the next step you always should do a dipstick anyways you don't just look at it and go okay well I'm okay with that you really should do uh, the dipstick so the dipstick or the chemical exam is a bit just a quick note it's a bit user dependent it has to be fully immersed in the urine for a short period of time and if you read the results too early or too late you might get an inaccurate reading so make sure you read the manufacturer's recommendation to ensure the accuracy of your test and some of the test strips cannot be left open to air as they become less reliable and I know that that was a big lesson for me. We work with a physician who's very passionate about the timing of a urinalysis. Yeah. And I know it was a lesson to me when she pulled me aside one day. And, and it's not wait two minutes for the whole thing. Some of the little squares on the urinalysis test strip are after 15 seconds, you read that square, but 60 seconds at a square later on down the strip. So it is important to understand it's not the whole strip. Yeah. It has the same timing. Some of them are instant, up to two or three minutes, some of them. Yeah, exactly. And I know that in our facility, we now have this really fancy, fancy urine dip reading machine. So again... Which just reads the color. Exactly. So you do actually still have to kind of take that into account with the clim- clinical um, presentation of your patient. But the dipstick usually includes things like specific gravity, pH, protein, glucose, ketones, Um, blood, leukocytes, nitrites, bile, and urobilly. So let's look at each of these tests in a little bit more detail. We'll just go back and forth doing a couple of them. So the first one we often look at is specific gravity. And this usually, again, is just a measure of your urine concentration. And there's no such thing as an abnormal specific gravity values. Uh, For all you chemists out there, it's actually a comparison of the amount of solutes, which are the substances dissolved in urine, as compared to pure water. So if a patient drinks a lot of water in a short period of time or gets an IV bolus and then you check their urine, their specific gravity would be a lot lower. Now, it is actually kind of important that you know this because knowing the urine concentration can help us decide if the urine specimen is the best one to detect a a particular substance. For example, if you're looking for very small amounts of protein, a concentrated morning urine specimen would be the best sample. We'll talk a little bit more about the protein a little later. So the second one is... is oh, pe- wait a minute, though, oh. Landon. What were we going to talk about? Oh, yeah. Pregnancy? So it is important as well to know your manufacturer of, of your pregnancy test for one of them. Yeah, urine preg screen. Yeah. 
I know that there are, there is a certain requirement for a certain urine-specific gravity for most of the manufacturers. So if you have urine that's too dilute and too clear, there may not be enough hormone in that urine for the preg test to show up positive. So it's important to know which test you use yes. and to make sure, once you establish that, that the urine that you have is... Um, is concentrated enough. Exactly. And is, if it isn't, you're going to have to do a, a screen with blood. Exactly. So it is important. So specific gravity can be important if you're looking for other things besides the specific gravity itself. So moving on to pH, London. So pH, as with specific gravity, um, there are typical but not abnormal pH values. The, the pH of urine is typically you know, a certain number. The kidneys do play an important role in maintaining the acid-base balance of the body. It's important to understand, though, that acidic urine versus alkalytic urine isn't really an indication of your patient's acid-base balance. So if you, if you don't have a blood gas machine, don't start dipping urine and seeing that their pH is 5 and thinking they're dying. It, it could be. It could also be that their pH of their urine is 9 and their body is acidic. So it's, it's not correlated at all. One thing that does modify urine pH for sure is diet and, you know, the good old cranberry thing that I know you're going to enlighten us with later uh, <laughs> yeah. can make the urine more acidic. Yeah. Vegetarian or low-carb diet or citrus fruits might make it a little more alkaline. It's, but again, it's not really related to anything that we would use to diagnose a sick person in front of you. Sure. There's also actually a lot of, if you look online too, you'll, especially if you go to a naturopath or something like that, where they actually look a lot at the urine uh, pH and they actually will recommend different types of diet to make your urine more acid or more alkalotic and how to make you a little bit more balanced. There hasn't actually been any scientific um, evidence that changing your diet will actually affect your general well-being and acid-base balance in your body. Um, so as you said, I think we really need to kind of look at clinical picture and whether this is um, intended to be a diagnostic tool or just a, aha, maybe we should look further based on the patient's clinical pr uh, presentation. So now let's move on to uh, protein. And protein actually measures the amount of albumin in the urine. The albumin is smaller than most other proteins, and it's typically the first protein that is seen in the urine when kidney dysfunction begins to develop. Uh, normally, you shouldn't have any detectable quantities of albumin in the urine. When this is elevated, this can be an early sign of kidney disease, and it may actually require further urine testing. Uh, proteinuria is often associated with lots of other chronic diseases like um, uh, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes. And so patients who are at risk should probably usually have a urine protein test done. And there are certain cultures that are of higher risk, like African Americans, First Nations, Hispanics, uh, Pacific Islanders, um, older people, overweight people and any people with a family history of kidney disease. And isn't that interesting? All of those um, different at-risk people, I think I've been actually told I look like. So there That's you right. go. I should probably get my urine protein checked immediately. Another mention about the, the pregnancy, which is very interesting, is that you should never see uh, protein in pregnancy screening. Um, you should really, if that's, uh, in, if you see protein, you should actually do further testing because it could be an indicator of preeclampsia. So uh, protein in the urine plus high blood pressure plus neurological kind of symptoms um, certainly needs to be investigated for preeclampsia. Okay, let's move on to glucose. Uh, glucose is not usually in the urine. 
So if, if it is there, it's because usually there's a, a high level of blood glucose and the kidneys begin to get rid of it through the urine. Mm -hmm. Typically, these people will either be known diabetics that aren't managing their diabetes well or uh, unknown diabetics who are starting to show the signs of, of diabetes. Either way, it's not normal to have glucose in your urine. There are some other... Um, reasons to possibly have glucose in your urine, some liver failure, pregnancy, those sorts of things. But again, overall for an emergency department, quick urinalysis, if there's glucose in the urine, it warrants some more questions. Doesn't mean they're going to die tomorrow, but it means you should probably figure out a few more things before writing them off is fine. Yeah, probably need some blood work, and which we usually do. Um, ketones, moving on to ketones, not normally found in the urine, and they're usually intermediate products of fat metabolism. So all you people on a low-carb, high-protein diet, you are causing your body to metabolize fat instead of the carbs to get the energy it needs to bring to keep functioning. So you're going to see ketones in your urine. This may also give us an early indication that a person who has diabetes probably doesn't have sufficient insulin. So we may have to think about dosing their meds, or you've been exercising too hard, um, which, you know, Landon does all the time, all or the time. Uh, having had lots of frequent vomiting, you're going to see some ketones in there. All the time. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, so please, when you see ketones, we probably need a further investigation to see what's going on there. All right. Now the one that most of us are screening for when we actually dip the urine is, uh, one of them anyway, is blood mm -hmm. or hemoglobin. Yeah. When there's a small number of red blood cells present in the urine, it might actually get a negative test right. for on the red dip, blood cells right? on the dip. You yeah. need a certain number of red blood cells. Remember, you're taking this little foam square and you're dipping it in this big pot of urine. you got to catch some blood. And if there isn't very much there, you might not detect some. As the number of red blood cells increase, obviously it's a positive test result. So lots of things, again, that it can suggest. The most common one that we... Uh, see and are actually testing for is kidney stones mm -hmm. but it could be indicative of other sorts of kidney disease definitely trauma some medications strenuous exercise can cause hematuria but let's be honest we're typically looking for kidney stones and and those other ones a lot of times you dip it find blood and go oh i wasn't expecting that i was actually looking for something else now the, the test can't actually tell you how bad the disease is and and i see this often in practice where people will get a urine sample that even has gross hematuria in it and they think that indicates oh this person's sicker than the one that just has microscopic hematuria absolutely it's not it's blood in the urine it needs to be looked at it right. doesn't actually mean that they're bad because you can see this blood versus any other blood the the other thing that's kind of interesting though landon is that you know it's great when you're talking about clinical situations when you're dipping for blood because it is important for you to think about microscopic and gross hematuria, but it doesn't really indicate the severity of the disease. But if you have someone with flank pain, history that would indicate a kidney stone and hematuria on a dip, then you would likely anticipate they're going to need further investigation to rule out a kidney stone like a KUB or something like that. If you see blood and Luke's, though, on uh, your dipstick, that would probably indicate a UTI. You right. should not see Luke's. If you're having a kidney stone, if that's the case, then that person is really kind of sick and they need to be admitted to the hospital. Now, the weird thing, and uh, maybe you can talk about this a little bit, is sometimes when you dip the blood in the urine, it's negative. But when you do the microscopic exam, which we'll talk about later, it actually shows an increased number of RBCs. Uh, when that happens, have you heard about yeah, it's, it, what you do about what that? Yeah, apparently what it is is... 
if you have a, a lot of ascorbic acid or vitamin C, it will interfere with the accuracy of the dip test result. Really? Uh, and so it may be a false low or even a false negative. negative. And so wow. if someone's been taking the vitamin C pills, um, that may be... It may or may not be an indication to actually do a microscopic. Yeah. But more importantly is if it comes back that the microscopic showed red blood cells and your dip didn't, it doesn't mean you're a bad nurse and doesn't know how to do it. Yeah. Uh, although check your technique. Yeah. It, it could be that the lab, and that's why we do a microscopic, they do it in a different way. way. Yeah. And they're not just looking at color on some foam piece of paper. Exactly. Uh, and so, yeah, vitamin C can interfere with the chemical reaction on those urine dipsticks. Great. So the next thing we usually look at is the leukocyte esterase, which is actually an enzyme present in most WBCs. And normally, again, in the dip, you may have a few WBCs, um, but it won't actually indicate as positive on your dipstick. You do actually have to have an increased number of that enzyme significantly before that screening test will become positive. And usually this indicates a UTI. Now, I do want to mention a brief word about asymptomatic bacteremia. Because a lot of times you may dip a urine that um, shows uh, leukocytes, but the patient doesn't have any clinical signs of it. In fact, they came in because, I don't know, they stubbed their toe or something like that. And so it's actually quite common to get asymptomatic bacteremia, which just means your urine dips for white blood cells, but you're not having symptoms of a UTI or pylo. Most people who have this do not need antibiotics. Let me repeat this, do not need antibiotics. Sometimes people who have asymptomatic bacteria might be at risk for getting a UTI. God, how did I just say that? Asymptomatic I think, bacteremia. I think Monique's having a stroke. I know. But that's uh, the next podcast. <laughs> exactly. So some people who have asymptomatic bacteremia well are at risk of getting a UTI down the road. But treating them when they don't have symptoms does not decrease their risk of getting a UTI. And it hasn't been shown to improve outcomes. Now, in saying that, there are certain populations that do need to be treated with asymptomatic bacteremia. Ba pregnant women uh, are at increased risk for adverse outcomes, uh, early labor and things like that, so they should be treated. And anyone who's go undergoing any kind of urological intervention, whether it's mucosal bleeding, so cystoscopy, prostate biopsy, they should be tested or treated with antibiotics um, for leaks in the urine. Okay, great. Uh, let's move on to nitrites. So a lot of bacteria convert nitrates to nitrite in their normal metabolism. And normally the urinary tract is free of bacteria. So when bacteria obviously find their way into the urinary tract, into the urinary tract, we're both having strokes today. I know, exactly. They can cause a urinary tract infection. So a positive nitrite test can indicate a UTI, but not all bacteria convert nitrate to nitrate. So even though you have no nitrites, and have uh, that doesn't mean they don't have a UTI. UTI. So if they yeah. have white blood cells and no nitrites, they could still have a UTI. Right. If they have both, then they most likely have, have a, a UTI. UTI. Yeah. So it's just another piece of the puzzle to, to add together. Sometimes it's kind of weird because sometimes I have noticed that you dip it and you get nitrites but no leukocytes. And I've been trying to figure out if there's anything, if anyone out there in Cyberland knows why that happens, certainly get onto our podcast and write it down. But in investigating it, I couldn't really see anything that correlated with that. From a very um, clinical perspective, I have seen that in a couple of my patients who ended up down the road having pyelonephritis, and one person actually ended up with um, ascending cholangitis, and they had nitrite. So it was a very unusual uh, picture for me. 
Let's end with Billy and Eurobilly, which I'm going to talk about together. And normally, um, bilirubin should not be present in the urine of normal, healthy individuals. Eurobilly um, may be present in low concentrations, but if you have a positive of either of those, it's usually indicative of some type of liver disease, um, hemolytic anemia, perhaps, or uh, hepatic or biliary obstruction. So if you do see that, again, it bears us to do further testing, diagnostic testing. So I think we may end with the microscopic exam. So I'm going to let you take over there, Landon. So the last part is the microscopic. And this Mm -hmm. is, uh, for most of us, we send this away to someone to do. Probably very few of us have a a microscope in our emergency department (laughs) that we're looking at year and under. But you never know. People are listening around the world. So uh, if you're one of those nurses with a microscope, good on you because I wouldn't know what I'm doing but typically so what what they do is this actually is not just done on the urine what they do is they uh, centrifuge the urine and they take the sediment and actually uh, look at the bits in the urine much like they do with blood so there is obviously there are going to normally be a few red blood cells present in urine sediment just like there was in the urine dip Mm -hmm. Uh, if there is a larger amount it's more indicative of inflammation injury disease the same thing the dip indicated. This yeah. is just allowing them to get a lot more accurate. Much as with the dip, there could be white blood cells in it, and if it is high, then it's going to indicate an infection. Uh, it could be contaminant from vaginal secretions, though, so that's one piece of the puzzle to put together there. The microscopic isn't going to tell you that. It's just going to tell you there's red blood cells. It's not going to tell you where they came from. That's a little different than epithelial cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is normal to have a few epithelial cells from the bladder, um, specifically transitional epithelial cells or from the external urethra, squamous epithelial cells. Um, and they can be found in the urine sediment. Cells from the kidney are less common. So mm-hmm. in, in the microscopic, the epithelial cells, it may just say epithelial cells or they may actually um, be advanced enough in their microscopy. Yes. I don't know why that came out almost in French. Uh <laughs> with looking at what kind of epithelial cells they are. Again, it's just your lab dependent and your microbiologist dependent. So in urinary tract conditions, more epithelial cells are present. And if you you can figure out what kinds of cells they are, it might give you an indication of where they're from. The reality, we're probably going to be investigating you a little further with some imaging if you're at this stage. Again, microscopic, they're going to see everything that's microscopic. So bacteria, trichomonas, yeast those shouldn't be in the urinary tract. So you may actually get them uh, visualized Mm -hmm. and that's where the urine culture would then actually try to grow some of these and figure out exactly what kind they are. And my understanding with yeast and trichomonas, it's not as common in men as it is in women. And if you do see it in women, they probably need to have a pelvic exam if you haven't done it already with swabs done. Uh, to ensure that there's nothing else. They may be contaminants in the urine and it's actually coming from the vaginal tract. So it is kind of important for us, if you're seeing that on a microscopic exam, that the primary care provider, the EP or the NP in this case, you know, would be doing a pelvic exam. Perfect. A couple of last two things that you might see. One is called casts, which are cylindrical particles sometimes found in urine. And those are formed from coagulated proteins secreted by the kidney cells. We sound so smart, don't we? I know, we do. (laughs) Now, in healthy people, they are clear and they're called hyaline casts, which Mm -hmm. a lot of you probably went, oh yeah, I've seen that on the lab report before. Well, that's what they are. It's, It's normal. In some kidney disease, some red or white blood cells can get trapped in those proteins as they're formed. And so then you can have 
uh, red blood cell casts or white blood cell casts. Again, much beyond the emergency department scope. When you see those, you need to look into it further. They can indicate lots of different things, typically some sort of kidney disease um, that is forming, and maybe you'll be the one who first notices it, Mm -hmm. Uh, or maybe they're long down the road of renal failure and this was an expected thing. The last thing are crystals. These are normal uh, if they are from solutes that are typically found in the urine. So crystalline uric acid, calcium oxalates, amorphous phosphates, to name a few. They are considered abnormal and may indicate abnormal metabolic processes if there's some weird ones, cysteine, tyrosine, leucine, again, much beyond the emergency department your analysis. If there's weird-looking crystals, your job as, as providers is to either expect it or to look into it further and and you're not going to diagnose someone's renal failure just based on this oh there's a crystal in their urine but it might indicate you a little bit so why don't you uh summarize all of that who who (laughs) knew that one little dipstick dipped in urine could fill 20 some minutes well it is quite interesting isn't it that urine itself can give you so much information so let's in summary kind of try to encapsulate some of this information so a vision so there are three tests a visual exam a chemical exam and a microscopic exam the visual exam of the three c's color concentration and clarity just gives us a general appearance The chemical exam should always be done. You should not just start with the visual exam. You should always do the dipstick as well. Protein and glucose are abnormal. If you see them, they're either kidney disease or diabetes, or in pregnancy, maybe preeclampsia. So they need further blood work or diagnostic testing. Ketones may be related to excessive exercise or diabetes. WBCs, plus or minus nitrites, plus or minus RBCs usually indicate a UTI. Remember, asymptomatic bacteremia only is treated in pregnancy and prior to urological manipulation. RBCs alone usually indicate some type of kidney disease or kidney stones, may need further diagnostic testing. Billy or urobilly may indicate liver disease or biliary obstruction. Microscopic exams are done to pinpoint the cause of the abnormalities discovered in the dipstick. Now, now I promised. Yes, you did. You would talk a little bit about cranberry juice. I know. All of a sudden, everybody wants to run out and get cranberry juice. All this talk about pee, I'm sure some of you are needing to go to the bathroom. But uh, we're almost done. I just a couple of things that are worthy of a mention. One is cranberry juice and UTIs. And the theory has suggested that the active compounds in cranberry juice are not destroyed by your digestive system. And in fact, it stays there and it fights against bacteria, including E. coli, which is the main culprit for UTIs. And what they found is that the cranberry metabolites in the juice prevent E. coli from sticking to other bacteria so it can't grow and multiply. And so if E. coli is able to connect with other bacteria, such as the bacteria found in the urinary tract, it forms a layer or biofilm, which allows the bacteria to multiply and produce an infection. So if the cranberry metabolites stop it from sticking, hopefully it doesn't proliferate. However, a Cochrane review in 2012 showed that there's 24 studies done since 2008 on the cranberry juice UTI question. A person has a 14% lower risk of UTI if they're taking cranberry juice compared to no treatment or placebo. 
However, the researchers point out that this was not a very significant difference and could simply have just been chance. They went on to say that numerous people dropped out of several studies because it was too difficult to drink the necessary amount of cranberry juice on a daily basis. So I guess the jury is out on whether it helps or not. So basically the amount of cranberry juice you have to drink makes you fat. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of sugar in them as well. And frankly, the cranberry cocktail has a lot of the sugar. If you're truly drinking the pure cranberry juice, it tastes dreadful. Um, So who knows, maybe that's why people are not taking it. The last word I want to talk about is really about urine cultures and ESBL. There are some schools of thought that if you have a first-time UTI or an uncomplicated UTI, likely caused by E. coli, and the antibiotics that are prescribed, taking into account the resistant rates in your community, would not require urine culture. But in several studies, the prevalence of ESBL, which is extended spectrum beta lactamase, um, for outpatients are about 12%. That's a significant amount of all the UTIs that we're actually treating. And ESBLs are a certain group of bacteria that produce an enzyme that breaks down the antibiotics to make them ineffective. So traditional antibiotics are not effective, making these types of bacteria harder to treat. It's kind of like the MRSA of the UTI world. So if your patient is not getting any better, they're having repeated UTIs, it probably would be a good idea to do a urine culture to ensure that they do not have ESBL and would need a different antibiotic. I know that in my practice, I'm probably a little bit more vigilant that if you have a positive uh, urine dip and signs and symptoms of a UTI, I quite often will do a um, urine culture. If they've had a recent sexual partner or new sexual partner, I often will do a pelvic exam as well. I'm a little thorough, but I do think we want to make sure that we're treating the right organism with the right antibiotic. Excellent. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, A little longer than usual, but uh, something that a lot of us don't know about. We just dip that urine and put some check marks on a piece of paper. (laughs) So hopefully we expanded your knowledge a little bit and we will see you next time. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, Ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education. www.prneducation.ca